Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, and welcome back to another Behind the Knife. I hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, fantastic trauma series. And we just wanted to give one more shout out to the RAS uh, Behind the Knife collaboration on this Journal Club uh, landmark papers that we have on our YouTube channel. This is a really unique collaboration uh, that will allow you to get a video publication that will be part of RAS and Behind the Knife. And uh, if you guys want to get involved, uh, this is something that we're recruiting. So if there's a specialty that you're interested in and you want to review some of the landmark papers and put some of these videos together, we can help provide you with the resources to do that and teach you how to do it and uh, get you involved and get these published. Uh, so Megan, uh, w- what's the best way for these uh, residents to get in touch to help out with these uh, videos? Yeah, Kevin, so we really would love to have anyone who wants to participate join in. Um, so first thing is just make sure that you're a resident member of the American College of Surgeons. And then if you are, contact us at btkpodcast at gmail.com or you can email rasnews at facs.org. Either one is fine and they will put you in touch with me um, and we'll add you to our committee and you can uh, go forth and make the videos. So um, reach out to us, email us. You can also contact us on Twitter or our Facebook if that is your preferred avenue. Yeah, and there's uh, so many great landmark papers uh, that we need to get going. I know one uh, major deficit we have currently is we have no oncology papers. So if you're interested in surgical oncology, this is a great opportunity to uh, help us out um, and, and many other fields too. So, uh, well, thank you, Megan, for all your work with this. Thanks, Kevin. So welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Center in Houston, Texas. And today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Brian Cotton and Dr. Ethan Taub. Dr. Cotton is a professor of surgery at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas in Houston and is the director of the Acute Care and Surgical Critical Care Fellowships here. He is a national leader in the uh, field of trauma resuscitation and uh, is an extremely capable trauma surgeon. Also thrilled to have Dr. Ethan Taub with us today. Dr. Taub's an assistant professor uh, here at the University of Texas as well. He's also the director of uh, the medical student surgery clerkship here at the University of Texas and in his own right, not too shabby of a trauma surgeon as well. So it's an honor to have you guys both here today. Um, Dr. Cotton, uh, can you, before we dive into the episode, let's talk real briefly just about your your training history, research interests. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit about the Maura Herman program here that, that I've been lucky enough to be a part sure. of. Sure. Real briefly, uh, trained at the University of Missouri uh, for surgery residency, uh, went to uh, Penn for fellowship for two years, first job at Vanderbilt, where I was completely radically transformed with what I wanted to do from a research standpoint from studying delirium, uh, which was my initial uh, area of interest, into doing resuscitation and then later on hemorrhagic shock based on what I was seeing uh, the practice at the time was and how I wanted to change it. Uh, came to Houston and after about a year took over the fellowship in 2010. We expanded from a surgical critical care one-year fellowship at that time to a two-year uh, fellowship both in acute care surgery and then later added on a one-year trauma surgery, clinical trauma surgery fellowship. Uh, 
Uh, we are a fellowship that has three uh, spots for our two-year program. We have one-year spots as well for the uh, trauma surgery program. Most of those come for non-U.S. trainees. They're looking for focused trauma clinical uh, training to take back to their country of origin. Uh, although some U.S. trainees, such as yourself, have taken on this uh, trauma uh, fellowship. The program is at the hospital, Moral Herman Hospital and the Red Duke Trauma Institute, busiest trauma center in the U.S. Uh, by all numbers that are measured uh, and has continued to remain quite busy throughout the COVID crisis that we've seen here. Uh, it is a fantastic training program and it is, as I described to many people who have interviewed here, uh, may recognize the title of your program. The, the big, big T. The Big T. <clears throat> are you Friends a Big T here. or a Big C? Uh, and we always encourage people that see themselves or self-identify, if you will, to put it in the current vernacular. Uh, if you're a Big T, trauma first and you do critical care uh, as well. You are a big T. If you are an intensivist, you are a big C and you do trauma on the side or EGS on the side. We look for the people that are interested in being the big T, the big trauma surgeon. Uh, and that's what I think our fellowship offers. We uh, do our own vascular, our own uh, cardiac, thoracic, uh, head and neck stuff, GU trauma, uh, and really try to be the true old school general surgeon for that patient and utilize our consultants uh, accordingly. Perfect. Could not agree more, Dr. Todd. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to uh, to meet uh, Dr. Cotton in uh, 2013 when I came down uh, to be a fellow after after graduating uh, from residency up in uh, on the west side of Chicago at uh, the UIC Mount Sinai program, uh, where I spent uh, five years taking care of a lot of uh, penetrating trauma. We had about 50% penetrating uh, trauma volume at my residency, uh, but uh, happily came down here to. Uh, to train uh, at the busiest level one trauma center in the country uh, under under the tutelage of, uh, of Dr. Brian Cotton, who's sitting right here next to me. And uh, it's been a, a privilege ever since. I left uh, for one year after after fellowship uh, for a job uh, back, back in Chicago on the south side, uh, but was recruited to come back to UT about halfway through that year. And uh, it's been it's been quite an honor to uh, to be here uh, to follow uh, the footsteps uh, of uh, Dr. Uh, Red Duke, who uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be the last fellow that he uh, ever trained. So it's uh, it's definitely a busy place, a wonderful place to, to be a trauma surgeon. Good. Couldn't agree more. So uh, happy to have you both here today. We're going to do a little something different on this episode, a little different than our prior episodes. And so instead of focusing on one topic, uh, we're going to run through a number of trauma scenarios. And these are uh, some complicated scenarios. But the idea is to get um, a more nuanced appreciation for some of the more difficult cases that can pop up. And these are scenarios that are somewhat random. They're all related to cases that I was either primary on or involved with here during my training uh, at the Memorial Herman and really over about the past four months is I think where we pulled these cases from. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. All right, for the first case, uh, this is a 21-year-old male. Stab wound to the left chest. They present to the trauma bay hypotensive, tachycardic, and tachypnic. Dr. Tom, start with uh, the box. What is the box? The, the box really is, uh, is uh, an anatomic location, anatom anatomic landmarks that make it up that really define the area where the mediastinum is, where the vital structures are, the heart, esophagus, trachea, etc. And that those anatomic landmarks are from the clavicles uh, down bet between the nipples, 
uh, to the costal margin anteriorly and posteriorly uh, from the from the traps uh, in between the scapula down to the scapular tip. Now, uh, those are the those are the classical definitions of the box. But what we've uh, come to realize, uh, a lot of this came out of World War II. Uh, but uh, what we know now is uh, bullets don't uh, don't respect anatomic boundaries and landmarks. And really, the box is more of uh, historical significance than it really is of. Uh, of uh, significance for how we take care of these trauma patients. But certainly, uh, that being said, if you have a patient with a penetrating uh, injury within the box, your clinical suspicion uh, should be uh, considerably heightened at that point. Okay, what structure specifically are you worried about? I'm worried about uh, any time I see penetrating injury within those landmarks of the box. I'm worried about cardiac injury, uh, uh, injuries to, uh, to the main bronchus or trachea, injuries to the esophagus, really those mediastinal structures. Okay, so, so Dr. Cotton, um, how do you go about assessing these patients in the, uh, in the uh, trauma bay? Sure, so I think the first thing you can do, especially if you have a non-intubated patient, I think the way I try to teach the trainees to approach the primary all starts with A, because if you can assess A uh, the way that I think you should assess it, you can get pretty much A, B, C, and D assessed from ATLS. So if I go up and say, Mr. Johnson, uh, what's your name? Or just, sir, what's your name? And they can, without breathlessness, say, Johnson, I know that their airway's not obstructed. If they can do it not short of breath, their B is probably grossly intact. If they heard what I said and responded, C is probably intact. They got enough perfusion going to their brain to respond. And then... D, they've got the neurocognitive response to it. Show me your, you know, wiggle your fingers, give me a thumbs up. I know this is kind of getting a little outside of the ABCD uh, flow pattern, but honestly, by being able to do that and give me a thumbs up or give me a middle finger or whichever one they choose, they can give me uh, a sense of A, B, C, and D are intact there. But focusing more on on this case specifically, uh, that's a good one to start with. Um, but let's say let's say the patient's not responsive. My air, you know, my airway, if it's already established, it's established. If it's not established and not threatened, uh, this is a patient stabbed into the box coming in. I want to assess the, what the need, what the sense of urgency is to actually get them secured and get them protected. Most of these. Uh, fortunately, are not going to have to be urgently protected. The ones that are not already. Now, why, why are you hesitating to intubate this patient? Sure. So where they are right now is is one of the safest uh, airways they're going to have if they have something going on, even if they're a little short of breath. Uh, they putting them under anesthetic, giving them drugs, and losing that airway and getting the potential for cardiovascular collapse with induction is a huge, huge deal. And it's a real thing. I think many of us that have been doing this a while have seen it uh, in a real-time fashion. So this is an airway that if I can absolutely not do it, I would rather take this patient up to the operating room and be inducing and getting that airway established with them prepped and draped and with a knife in my hand and a saw in my trainee's hand. Right. So, So you're worried about specific injuries right, pericardial tamponade, um, tension pneumothorax, uh, which uh, need to be rapidly assessed for in the, in the trauma bank, uh, you know, with the ultrasound or chest x-ray. Um, you can also see signs or symptoms of things like tension pneumothorax uh, on exam, hypoxia, tachypnea, hypotension, bulging neck veins, 
Um, certainly, you, if it's severe enough, maybe we feel that shift in trachea, and, and obviously the, the absent or, or, or distal sounding breath sounds uh, when you actually take a listen. Uh, for pericardial tamponade, similar, right? Uh, hypotension, tachycardia, bulging neck veins, also could be a distant heart sound. This, this odd sense of impending doom uh, for patients, patients who are wanting to sit up uh, to breathe, which we should very much allow those patients to do. Yeah, I was literally that. getting ready to over-talk you right, right <laughs> yeah, there. I caught you. To, to you say that, no, I was literally, because yeah. those are the ones. It's a classic, uh, uh, a classic presentation. If that patient wants to sit up and they absolutely are having that pending sense of doom, you need to listen. The patient knows a lot more than you think they know. In fact, that was one of my slides I used to always have when I gave the medical student lectures of listening to the patient when they are thirsty, when they won't, you know, they, they can't breathe, they're struggling, I can't swallow. Those are signs that you need to listen to, and this is one of them, when they cannot or will not lay flat. Perfect. So, Dr. Todd, let's say this patient has a heart rate of 130, Blood pressure is 90 over 60. You're in the trauma bay. Uh, as part of your workup, you obtain a fast, and you have pericardial tamponade that's fairly significant on your uh, exam. What do we do next? At, at that point, uh, after completing my secondary survey, making sure there's no other injuries anywhere else, uh, I'm going to be taking that patient to the operating room. In the right clinical setting, with a positive fast, of the pericardium, that patient needs a sternotomy or some exploration of their pericardial space in their heart. Uh, so depending on the location of the injuries, uh, again, that could be a sternotomy or thoracotomy or clamshell. Uh, it really depends on where the injuries are uh, and what else I'm trying to get after. But that patient is going directly to the operating room, not for a pericardial window, not for a diagnostic procedure. The diagnosis is already made in this clinical setting where we have a, hyper, a hypotensive tachycardic patient. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because this is something that's brought up, uh, has been brought up. You said, okay, answer to pericardial tamponade is a window. And it clearly it's, it's not. But can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What's, what, there's, a, there's an injury to the heart, right? There's a hole presumably from our stab wound. Right. And getting doing a window is not going to allow us access, right? No, a window, a pericardial window, a sub-xiphoid pericardial window is a diagnostic procedure. That is a procedure to identify the presence of blood within the pericardium in a patient who doesn't have all of the clinical findings uh, consistent with a cardiac injury. So maybe someone who has a proximity injury uh, that you can't get a good uh, look at the heart. Maybe there's, uh, there's a pneumothorax, so the air is precluding the view. Or uh, my other time that I'm doing a pericardial window is in the setting of a left-sided hemothorax with a proximity to, uh, to a cardiac injury, uh, then that cardiac injury could be decompressing into the left chest. And in that, in that scenario, I'm also doing a pericardial window to assure that there's no uh, pericardial effusion that's draining into the chest. Sure. Now, this case, then, to the case you and I did together recently, stab wound to the chest, uh, that ended up being a, a PA injury, right, and a very large tamponade. And, and when we went to the operating room, what we did is, actually, as you described, that patient was not intubated, okay? There were all the things that Dr. Cotton had mentioned we, we, we covered. And they were prepped. They had access, products, anesthesia was ready, prepped, draped, saw, confirmed to be running, the patient was so obtunded due to their worsening clinical scenario that we started our incision, 
before they got anesthesia. And once we were ready to do our sternotomy, that patient was induced, uh, promptly crashed, uh, car- complete cardiovascular collapse. But at that point, we were in the chest in a matter of you know, mm. you, you know a swipe of the saw, and we're able to assess the injury. So, so Dr. Cotton, um, our patient had a PA injury. Um, uh, what if PA versus aorta versus, well, the aorta probably wouldn't make it to us, but uh, a ventricular injury, how do you go about repairing those? How do you control it? What kind of suture pledges, et cetera? Sure. Let's step back just a second. Um, so let's say you're still in the bay. First of all, I, I want to go ahead and put a, a plug in that I think this would be a perfect case to go direct to the OR if your hospital has a policy and a procedure and a a system in place. We have this currently in place for air transports. We do not have it in place for ground transports. If this was an air transport, this case that you and Dr. Tom did would have gone straight to the operating theater based on not only physiology, but penetrating and and hypotensive penetrating and an ABC score of two or more, penetrating positive pericardial fast or an abdominal pass, and um, that would have gone straight to the operating theater from air by our current policy. Ground, we don't have that in place right now. And Uh, I'm just going to add to that, uh, as you you mentioned and alluded to, yes, our pre-hospital, our lifelike personnel have the ability to perform fast exams, both pericardial and abdominal fast, in the helicopter on the way. So given those findings, we make that decision to perform an operating room resuscitation. Yeah, and yeah, and and also to plug the fantastic uh, group of people that do uh, that run LifeLight and are members of the LifeLight team. Uh, when we did a, an evaluation, uh, evaluating their ultrasound skills, their ultrasound uh, positive rate was more predictive of going straight to the operating theater than are even are in the ER. Um, so they they are talented in that. Yes, they do miss some, uh, but the ones that they pick up on, they have a pretty good skill set, and they have a good uh, predictive model for going needing uh, not only mass transfusion but going straight to the operating theater. So the patient arrives by ground with the same physiology, the same presentation. Dr. Jorgoff and Dr. Tob just went over. This patient's pretty much going to get two things that are not a primary. I don't think we're going to get a secondary. We're going to get to E. We're going to do a super fast log roll to make sure there's not other holes going on. And then we're going to get a chest x-ray and a fast. If that fast is positive, you have an answer. If the fast is negative, you don't have an answer. Uh, but you don't have an ans- You don't have a positive answer that there's nothing there. Uh, you're Chest x-ray can be negative, like we talked about. You can have a uh, false negative uh, fast because your x-ray's got a left-sided effusion, sometimes even a right, but more but commonly a left. Can you expand on that a, a bit? So how do, sure. I get, how do I have a heart injury without tamponade yep. with some finding the left chest? Sure. So you've got a stab wound to the box. You have a heart laceration, pericardial injury, and it is decompressing into the left chest, into the pleural space, and that is giving you a negative window on your pericardial exam. Uh, some people are still talented enough, depending on where you are or what night you're on, who's on with you, uh, to pick up on a pericardial effusion that has decompressed. Uh, but most of the time, that chest X-ray is going to be your adjunct, and that's why I mentioned getting both together. Unless you're, if you're pericardial fast positive, you're, that's it. You don't need the chest X-ray uh, for that reason. I would still implore it as long as you had vitals that would allow you to get a rapid chest x-ray because there still could be a a pneumothorax or could be other things. There could be an impaled object still in the patient. I've seen that before where they've been stabbed and then the knife, the blade part breaks off and the handle is no longer there and not 
always does the patient that stabbed them stay around to give that information to the medics and the police before they are transported. So I always try to get x-rays of penetrating wounds so that I can make that determination. If you already haven't alerted your OR that you're coming up hot, that needs to happen almost on arrival. And if you already haven't activated your system's massive transfusion protocol, it needs to be happening now. And that's 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 one to re you know circle back on that one. That's perfect. A systems based standpoint that we don't you know a lot of the stuff we don't think about as yeah. you know as opposed to the actual patient the anatomy and critically important to managing it. Which is an important part of trauma surgery in general is taking a look at the systems based management. Um, I do want you to answer. Yeah, the, the getting hole, back to the question. A hole, a hole in the LV. Hole in the LV. So if they have the vitals that you've given me, and I can get up to the operating theater, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back up or go up and do exactly what you and Dr. Tom did. The patient's going to get in a wake, uh, prep and drape. I'm going to physically hear that saw go off. And I and that reason for that, we talk about the, the ways we practice medicine when we do rounds, right? The three Fs, fact, fiction, and, and F-ups, right? And so I've been in that situation where I've reached to grab the saw in an emergency situation, and it wasn't firing. It was not plugged up. The uh, the pressure system wasn't working well, and it was not working. So I always want to make sure that saw's uh, not, you know, it is functional. In addition, you also want to have on your field, just in case something goes wrong, even if it was functioning, a Lipschi or something that you can get through, uh, whatever you're comfortable with to get through that sternum rapidly if that saw malfunctions. So now I'm in the chest. I've opened, done my sternotomy. I see the LV. Uh, it depends on where it's located. Uh, but for the most part, this is going to get either a sponge forcep uh, that is uh, allowing the heart to still beat and just dabbing and, and hold, holding pressure on that very gently, allowing it to beat, not pushing too much down. It's going to bleed around it, but not exsanguinate through that LV. That's what you're looking for. You're going to be doing that while your partner, whoever you're operating with, is getting that pledgeted 2.0 proline up and ready and getting that ready to be loaded. You're going to load back through it. I like to do a horizontal mattress, uh, and I will usually do four separate uh, pledges or two separate pledges, either four squares or two rectangles, one on each side of the laceration or four for each corner that goes in and do a, uh, again, horizontal mattress uh, repair of this. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I would do it as well, whether it's 2-0 or 3-0 or proline, uh, but uh, almost always pledgeted and uh, almost always a horizontal mattress, which, uh, which lets you avoid uh, coronary arteries if they're in, in proximity to the cardiac injury. Yeah. I, you know, again, I, I usually prefer, again, 3 is fine. It's not, it's usually not the, the 2 versus 3 for me. It's usually the needle mm -hmm. because uh, you've got a beating heart. Yeah. And that, that also takes takes into consideration. People need to realize you're, you're throwing this on a beating object. Uh, uh, and it is quite mobile and you've got blood there. So the first few times you do it, it can be a little unnerving. It also be unnerving after doing 10 of them. You need to be able to make one single pass, and so we usually want a little bit larger needle. Uh, and the two O's that we have currently uh, affords that. But again, you just need to figure out what works at your system for everything that we're saying here. Because as Bill Schwab used to tell us during fellowship, just like politics, all problems are, are local, all solutions are local. So figure out what you have at your at your hospital to pull this off. Uh, spe specific needle types. I like an MH needle. That's yeah. a, a nice big needle, and I yep. and I think uh, folks have a tendency to take a kind of chintzy bite, a small bite of, of myocardium, and that is the wrong thing to do, especially, uh, you know, if, if your friendly anesthesiologist is behind the curtain and, and giving some epi because the blood pressure is low and you take a, a, a poor, poor bite of, of myocardium, 
they're going to give that epi. The heart is going to fill and beat uh, harder, and the next thing you know, your injury is back open as and those bigger, sutures right? and bigger yeah. as those sutures tear yeah. through. So you really have one chance uh, uh, to mention uh, posterior injuries. Use a, a laparotomy pad to help you lift the heart up and and be careful because fingers will go through uh, myocardium if you're not careful. Yeah. yeah. And when you make, I agree with Dr. Tom, the, the communication is critical here. Yeah. They need to for know. All these, for all these cases. For every case. Yeah. Uh, for every case. And this is one example of it, where, what Dr. Tom brought up, which is about doing the, the little pushes of norepi and things like that. As soon as you get control, I mean, every little step, you need to let them know what you're doing. Uh, not only when you lift the heart up, and it may very well go into fib. It may very well have an arrhythmia issue. Uh, you may lose pulses. They, they need to know that you're doing it, but you still have to look at the back of the heart. It is absolutely a, you know, you, this is your exploratory laparotomy and looking at all the quadrants and running the bowel. This is the equivalent. You absolutely have to get back there and look at the back side and of it. On a mention, I mean, we talked about lifting up the heart. You're talking about lifting up the heart from the apex up to the point up towards yep. the ceiling, right, to look at the back. Your, you will have major outflow issues, Correct. outflow issues, Correct. and your heart will be unhappy, even the healthiest of hearts. So Correct. be prepared for that, but it is critical. As you mentioned, you have to see yeah. that. You know, this is, this is uh, something that requires uh, speed, uh, probably not something you want to tackle with your most junior resident. If you, if you get a choice, uh, you want a good extra set of hands with you. And uh, another word on uh, flipping the heart over, they will go asystolic, but I remember... I think it was Red Duke used to say, "Well, son, that's your chance to sew." Uh, when, when the when the heart stops, uh, that's he, he starts sewing quickly right then and, and let the heart down and and it'll start back up again. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Last question for this case: um, atrial injury or a, uh, a venous injury? How do you sew that up? How do you repair? How do you control it? Atrial injury, especially right atrial appendage, great chance for a side-biting Satinsky clamp on that. That's going to control and, and then just do uh, similar like you would on a cava, like a lateral uh, venorophy. Uh, of course, it's not, not a vein if it's the atrial appendage, but you get the idea. Put that clamp on and, and close the hole. Yeah. One, 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 yeah, correct. One more, one more uh, plug on the communication. You also need to let them know as soon as you've gotten control so that they don't over-resuscitate. Uh, not... And I get over transfuse. Even the good stuff that I love, uh, with the, with the, with whole blood or plasma and things like that, I, you still don't want them to blow up that heart. And I've seen them do that several times. And then one last thing: we're talking about box injuries, transmediastinal injuries. Don't forget the other structures. You need to absolutely look at the trachea or the esophagus if if the trajectories are right. Don't forget those other structures. Uh, if you've got a stable patient, different from what we're talking about with a transmediastinal wound. If the location is correct, also don't forget about the diaphragms. And if you've got your intrapericardial IVC or even just above it, sometimes uh, it, your fingers are your friends. If that side binding Satinsky or that little vascular clamp, you cannot make it into you know the angle through that sternotomy incision. Don't be embarrassed to just use your fingers. Don't be shy about that. They're nice and soft, and uh, the finger pads will help kind of compress it enough. Because again, it doesn't have to be completely hemostatic. Because they're extra soft. This, Ethan, sorry. It does not. This is not an elective case. This is an emergency case. It's okay to have a little bleeding, just like with the LV or RV uh, injuries we talked about. By just putting a little sponge four step on it and taking it off in, in between, so you can throw bites. It does and not. Y'all can't see this, but Doctor Cotton's got his hand bouncing around, essentially showing that you're all you're almost riding the, the the movement of the heart back and forth. And again, to that end, you're controlling bleeding, but you're not jamming the whole thing through. They're making it bigger. Correct. All right. 
All right, let's get on with the, the next case. Uh, this one, uh, we have a patient comes in with a gunshot wound. Okay, one hole to the left upper chest, just inferior to the clavicle and the more medial aspect of the clavicle. All right, uh, Dr. Cotton, this patient is unstable. They have a legitimately expanding hematoma. They have a pulseless left upper extremity. What's your tips and tricks for, for management, for approach, for operative approach, et cetera? Yeah, so this patient uh, is going to go up to the operating theater. You're already going to have your massive transfusion activated. You're going to have your full team ready to go. Uh, you're going to have a major vascular set, major chest set uh, ordered and in the room, hopefully, including a saw. Uh, you're going to prep and drape both arms abducted, uh, and chin to knees, table to table bilateral on your prep, just not knowing what you're getting into. Uh, you may or may not need other uh, adjuncts that we can talk about later. That's how I'm going to start. Uh, the incision here, uh, again, based on habitus and based on what you're presenting, uh, mid versus distal versus proximal clavicle, uh, I would consider, again, an infraclavicular approach on this side versus a supraclavicular approach, depending on what your, uh, what your anatomy is, what your hematoma is. Uh, I have frequently found the infraclavicular approach to be adequate in a lot of these cases. And in an unstable patient, I would feel more comfortable doing an infraclavicular and planning on doing a claviculectomy or resecting uh, the clavicle in that section if I needed to get... Uh, and let me add, so yeah, let's say so you had a chest x-ray in a, fat, in a yeah. pericardial yes. fast negative, yep. right? Yep. And uh, I guess since we didn't clarify this far, let's say the bullet stuck up farther in the left, towards the left shoulder. Correct. Okay, there's a bolt there. Right? Correct. Okay, so this is, we have ruled out badness like we talked about. Correct. In our prior the patient case. has not died okay. in the ED or lost pulses. Right, can, or you, can you expand on where where the proximal clavicle, mid clavicle, distal clavicle, infraclavicular versus supraclavicular right. excision as you've started talking about? Explain that some more. Right. That's confusing for right. a lot of people where the anatomy is. Right. So to me, all the all those are referring to the location of of that proximal third, middle third, distal third, is helping me decide where I'm gonna make my incision mm -hmm. because you're looking at proximal and distal control. I got a very proximal uh, third. Uh, you very may very well be needing a sternotomy to get proximal control with an extension into an infraclavicular approach. If you're mid and distal, that's something that you may very well not need a uh, sternotomy or needing to get proximal that proximal. You may very well be just be able to do an infraclavicular or supraclavicular approach, resect the clavicle or not, again, depending on your anatomy, depending on displacement of the hematoma. You can just go ahead and resect the clavicle, right? And absolutely. If you absolutely. Need to do it, you absolutely. Do it, right? Absolutely. Okay. And I will tell you, most cases, Cases, uh, that have survived that clavicle has been put back in situ uh, and either been uh, resecured with plates or not uh, at that moment. Sometimes it's done in a delayed fashion with ortho. Other times it's uh, uh, just placed back and done by us and on the initial case, depending on the patient's uh, uh, status. Mm -hmm. That said, you can also completely just resect it and not put it back. Okay. We, in general, we try from a functional standpoint to put it back. Uh, even if it's literally just uh, resting there for ortho to, to uh, fixate later. One of the course, uh, the asset course, um, this, for this very particular question, the asset course has a beautiful video and approach, just like for all of their approaches, but particularly for this very kind of uh, sphincter tightening situation of a subplating versus axillary kind of injury, 
where you're really, you know, this is not something we see that often. It can be, especially if it's if it's an expanding hematoma, you're really worried about your approach. You're, you're, uh, it can be challenging to think about. But the asset course has a beautiful video and an approach uh, that in, talks about how you get through the pack and and how you and how and where you identify that subclavian uh, artery. And I would encourage any anyone listening who's who's serious about trauma to take a look at that too, or at least if you haven't done the course, sign up for because that's one of the many benefits of the course. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you, you pretty much covered the exposures. Uh, a lot of the textbooks will tell you for a proximal left uh, subclavian that a left posterior lateral thoracotomy is is the incision of choice, and I have a really hard time with that in uh, in a setting uh, with a patient who's an extremis who may have additional uh, unidentified injuries at at that point, uh, flipping a patient on their side uh, anytime emergently. I have a I, I struggle with that. So I think I think the the time that you would utilize the incision that's in books so often with that uh, incision is going to be more of an anterolateral in the ED because they've crash encoded. Yeah. Uh, I've used it once for that I think and you've done it. Lost pulse has gone in, saw the very proximal injury and clamped it proximally via the chest. But there was no way I was going to so be where able to is it? So left side versus right side. We're talking about left side right now. Where is the prox- what is the trajectory of the proximal subclavian artery? Where does it go? We talk about this a little bit. So, so superior kind of tracks distally and back farther Correct. away. So how do you get to it? Explain in words your best way you can explain what that proximal left subclavian artery is, where it is, and how to get to yeah, it. Yeah, so it's coming off, and, and Dr. Top can chime in as well, it's coming off much more posterior than you think. The textbooks will almost give you the impression that they're all three coming off in the single plane. Uh, from a from, look, yeah, exactly. They're really coming off in a curve as that aorta is cur- curving backwards. It's that last branch coming off, and it's going to be a lot more posterior. Which again, I think was what Dr. Todd was alluding to about how difficult that incision is to get. Uh, uh, not only just get control of during the patient with extremis, but also to try to repair anything uh, through that incision. But getting control, sweeping that lung down mm-hmm. uh, through your thor- if you if you've gone into the chest of that thoracotomy incision, sweeping that. Before you say that, yeah, too, please. Uh, how would you do your thoracotomy incision in, if you're in the bay, for instance, or in the OR for that matter? You're going to do thoracotomy. Is it going to be higher? Where's so, your right? Incision? So I try so. Almost like when I do my, so when I make a laparotomy incision, uh, I get, I have the trainee make the incision in the midline, and I tell them to cut straight down, don't don't deviate, and I grab a towel clip and I retract the umbilicus towards me at the last second and have them continue that incision. When they teach thoracotomy incisions, especially not just thoracotomy but emergency thoracotomy, which is going to be in my my uh, wheelhouse, going to be a clamshell if they have lost pulses, if they've died. Uh, I try them to almost cut the, the, the nipple of the male. If it's a female, to literally grab the breast and retract it upward and cut where the bra line, the underwire, would be cutting in uh, underneath the, the inframammary fold. And then in your experience, that that incision, that kind of standard retus- yep. RT kind of type of resuscitate kind of incision, uh, is adequate to get access to the proximal left subclavian for control? If they are dying, it is adequate but still can be challenging to get proximal control in the bleeding to death patient. It is not, in my experience and in my hands, the incision to be repairing anything through. It is the incision to be getting, oh my God, they're bleeding to death. 
now I've clamped the proximal. Now they are no longer bleeding to death, and now I can get up to the operating room and make a more appropriate incision. Okay. That reminds me of, of uh, another tip or caveat to subclavian injuries um, in patients while, while you've got them in the bay. Get the biggest Foley catheter you can and, and put it in that trajectory on your way up uh, to the operating room as, a, as your only real means to try and, and get this to tamponade at least a little bit to uh, hasten uh, blood loss. Now, Dr. Todd, we talked about, about the so left subclavian. What's the difference then in the anatomy of the right subclavian? So the, the right subclavian is coming off uh, of the anominate, which is the first branch off of the aortic arch. And that's going to be pretty anterior. It's very anterior. So that's going to be easy access via a median sternotomy. Another another thing I want to mention about about the left side, if uh, you know if, if you do a sternotomy and uh, you can't get to that left subclavian takeoff, make another incision, make a trapdoor incision, extend your extend your sternotomy uh, into a into a uh, infraclavicular or supraclavicular incision. There's no limit to how many incisions you can make when you're trying to save somebody's life. Excellent point. All right, so this, uh, that whole discussion really dovetails well into our next case. This is less of a case, more of a concept. Okay, we're talking about resuscitative thoracotomy, and, and uh, also kind of goes well with this. One of our previous episodes was about Reboa, all things Reboa, which also is very you know, closely related to um, what we're doing here with the resuscitative thoracotomy. So uh, first question for Dr. Cotton, right? We're going we're gonna to divvy up, you know, either you have a blunt injured patient or a patient with penetrating injury. Who... Who is a candidate for resuscitative thoracotomy? So the let me start with the perfect candidate, and then we can go down. The perfect candidate, the one that you really want to be doing a resuscitative thoracotomy on, is a stab wound to the box with tamponade. That's the perfect one. That's the one, and I say the perfect one. When I when I say that, I mean that's the one that you're going to get your biggest bang for your buck from. That's the one that's going to have the highest, and I'll use this over and over, walk out of survival, walk out of hospital survival. I'm not talking about physically getting physiology back and or a heartbeat and even cardiac function back in a young, healthy patient, but I'm talking about a walk out of survival, neurologically intact, return to function uh, status is going to be your stab wound to the box. So that's your perfect candidate. Uh, penetrating injury in general versus blunt, more penetrating than blunt as far as a likelihood of having any benefit to that patient. I'm going I'm to jump in really yeah, quick. Please. I'm going to read from, so the East Practice Management Guidelines, because okay, it was 2015, systematic review included 70 studies, okay, for penetrating, this regarding the outcomes. So penetrating injury, following resuscitative thoracotomy, survival was 11% per that review, again, and these data are highly skewed. Uh, with 90% neuro-intact, blunt a 2% survival, 60% neuro-intact. Um, these are probably even maybe higher than, than uh, you know, what we actually see in real life. But I wanted to jump in and say that's what the data says. That's probably the best numbers that you can kind of put in your, put in your mind and, and how dismal these outcomes are. Right. And, yeah, so I did a Grand Rounds presentation on this years ago, and, and the, the most impressive was looking just at almost what you just summarized, with, with penetrating stab wound to the box. So pericardial tamponade from a stab presenting with signs of life or arresting on arrival, those patients have got a 50% walkout of hospital survival rate based on the data at the time. So that's the one you really want to arrive to you. 
Uh, those who lose vitals between five and 10 minutes prior to arrival uh, would be the next one that are penetrating. Uh, those who arrive within 10 to 15 with an established airway, and again, this goes back to just looking at the data, uh, kind of really dissecting and subgrouping people. So they've gotten oxygenation, they've hopefully been neurologically maintained with close chest CPR, and they've been doing it, they've been intubated and oxygenating well on the way in, not just scoop and run, although I am a scoop and run proponent. Uh, so that would be your next le layer level. And then finally, your blunt arrest pre-hospital, uh, even with any uh, uh, minutes out of hospital. Uh, blunt with signs of life on arrival that you lose them or that arrive with vitals and they arrest in the ER uh, would be the prime blunt candidate to be doing this on. And I, again, the other caveat to think about is anatomic outside of the box, or even at least outside of the cardiac and thoracic cavities, your likelihood of saving their life with a clamp or a Reboa uh, is really, really low. When they are exsanguinating outside of those areas and they have lost vitals and you are opening the chest or electing to do Reboa and closed chest, it's incredibly remote regardless of whether that's blunt or penetrating. Yeah, and one of the things you first taught me when I arrived was, uh, I remember, I think one of my first shifts, a blunt, uh, NBC blunt patient came in with CPR for I don't remember how long, a while, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Actually, no, it was I think like 10 or 15 minutes. So it was something where it was like this wasn't an obscenely long amount of time. And you and you told me your approach to these these blunt patients. And again, this patient had a negative fast and a clear chest x-ray. Sure. So my blunt workup, I mean, it's is penetrating as well, uh, but my blunt workup, patient coming in without signs of life or with signs of life, but with no pulse. They're bringing CPR, closed chest CPR in. Uh, I start with ABCs and it's an intervention at every level. Uh, if they've got an airway in or an eye gel or whatever, um, I ask them to either replace it uh, or put one in. And most importantly, to take out the reasons that people are dying. So the reasons that are, people are dying that are retrievable are hypoxia and hypovolemia. So I want to make sure that their pre-hospital airway that was placed is actually an airway and not an esophageal airway. Uh, next, I want to listen for breath sounds. I want to decompress any potential tension pneumothorax that's killing them. So they're going to get finger thoracostomies rapidly. And then C, they're going to get volume in the form of a colloid, either whole blood or red cells and plasma, and they're going to get it rapidly. And they are going to get a pericardial fast. This is one of the few times uh, when patients arrive like this that I would actually bump doing the, finishing my primary before I brought in some, some radiographic evaluation. So a fast would be done at this point in time. And then D, looking at their pupils real quick, because those pupils are going to tell me a lot. People go, oh, they got sucks or they got rock in the field. That should not affect your pupillary muscles. Important point. It should not affect your pupillary muscles. Now, if they get you know, atropine or something like that in the field, uh, sure, there's, there can be some impacts, but if they were getting just paralytics in the field to intubate them, uh, they, their pupils should still be reactive. And if they are fixed and dilated, that is a huge break for me about proceeding, penetrating or, or blunt, but definitely in blunt. So that's my blunt workup. Check their airway. If they have one, make sure it's still through the, through the cords and not in the esophagus. Check their breast sounds finger decompress them rapidly, just assume they have tension pneumo, put that pericardial fast up there for two reasons. One, see if they got a tamponade, 
and two, see if they have any cardiac activity, and then finally D, look at their pupils, see if they're they reactive pupils. All right, Dr. Taub, so I pose a question to you. A blunt trauma, so MVC, young person, healthy. They have had, I'm gonna give you different times of CPR and put you in the hot hot seat to see, and there's no right answer, but you know, kind of get to what you're thinking about whether or not you do resuscitate thoracotomies. So young patient, they, I'll give you the workup first. They come in, they have uh, uh, a endotracheal tube that's in the right position, confirmed, with, uh, say, uh, with uh, CO2 capnography, something like that. It's confirmed, the x-ray looks good. No um, tension physiology in the chest, heart or lungs, finger decompressed. Let's say they have a positive abdominal fast, okay? They come in with five minutes of CPR. That's your workup. Do you do resuscitative thoracotomy? And they, they, they lose pulses and, or sorry, five, five minutes, excuse me, five minutes of CPR, they've already lost pulses. Do you do resuscitative thoracotomy? If, if the patient comes to me in pre-hospital arrest and blunt trauma, yeah. I am not going to do a resuscitative thoracotomy in that patient, okay. uh, especially... Uh, this this is for all blunt, but especially intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Intra-abdominal hemorrhage uh, leading to traumatic arrest uh, in a blunt trauma and in penetrating trauma. That's your, your chances of getting that patient back with any meaningful recovery is almost nothing. I, I know you, you quoted some some big numbers there for survival right. in, uh, in penetrating 11% uh, and 2% in blunt. Those are those are five-fold higher than the numbers I learned uh, as a resident. So I think there's probably some selection bias mm-hmm. uh, going on in, in the numbers you quoted. All right, let's say they have a, a, a not a negative fast. Okay, they have no cardiac activity on the, when you put a probe on, but they've been getting CPR for five minutes. Nothing in the chest. Pre-hospital blunt arrest, I am not doing a thoracotomy. Okay. Dr. Cotton, you want to add anything else to that? Pre-hospital blunt arrest... Uh, that doesn't respond to the above measures we talked about, re-securing that airway, decompressing both chests, and getting some volume in them is unlikely to receive anything. They Blunt is pretty much going to have to have Life Flight tell me that they arrested in the elevator or arrest in front of me. That's, that is something, and again, if you don't get a bunch of blood out as soon as you put your finger in for that finger thoracostomy or get a rush of air, now you're saying it's probably head, Head and then head, uh, or let's say it's it's a horrible horrible abdominal injury. You're now extra thoracic, and your likelihood of even penetrating salvageability is incredibly low. And then adding to that, neurologically salvageable. Uh, but I would add, just a plug for blunt emergency department thoracotomy. The one that's going to need it is the one that's crashing in front of you, not already crashed. Right. So those are the ones. When we talk about survival rates that are, I think you claim, or you, not claim, sorry, that you, you stated were th- uh, 2% for the blunts. Yeah. Uh, I suspect those were ones that had some physiology, were maybe 40s, 50s systolic. I absolutely think that's a patient that's going to get open. But one that has already lost pulses and is not a systolic, a measurable systolic, not a palpable carotid, none of that. That's a different, I think that's a, those are two different animals. Perfect. So uh, before we wrap up this, I just want to read what the exact uh, recommendations are per Western Trauma Association in East, just for our listeners to have that as a background to our discussion. Uh, so Western Trauma Association, they say if you have less than, very broad, less than 15 minutes of CPR for penetrating injury. That's what's recommended from that. Blunt, less than 10 minutes of CPR. And you evaluate cardiac activity immediately. 
those that are asystolic, if you're when you're looking physically at the heart, you're done. Okay, um, they are um, all resuscitative efforts should be halted at that point. You don't keep going. Uh, from there, you've you, you've done your evaluation per east for penetrating. Uh, conditionally recommended for pulseless with or without signs of life, and those signs of life specifically are pupillary response, spontaneous ventilation. Uh, presence of a carotid pulse, measurable or palpable uh, blood pressure, certainly extremity movement or cardiac electrical activity. Um, it's also a fairly broad definition too. And then for there for blunt, uh, again, recommendations for resuscitative thoracotomy, they say conditionally recommended for pulseless with signs of life, but not without signs of life. Okay, so again, very new, it's very nuanced. Um, and uh, and uh, I think we had an excellent discussion leading up to that um, that kind of hits on it. It's a complicated situation. That's why I think the signs of life thing is important. Do they have signs of life? And what those what we're talking about when we're talking about that is, do they have reactive pupils? Do they have at least some gasping respirations? Do they have any twitch movement in their extremities? Is there something there that even in the absence of a pulse shows that they are a fresh crash, that they are fresh arrest versus a, an arrest that's been down and is less likely to be salvaged. Because when you really break down uh, the data that's out there on on this, this, this topic, when they have signs of life, they are more salvageable than not. Sure. When they have vitals, they are more salvageable than, than signs of life. So there's, there's, there's different layers of it, and I think those are important. I also think it's important to figure out what incision that you're going to make when you do this, and and my and my my my, my uh, practice has evolved over time. Yeah, I want uh, yeah maybe Doctor Talk to tell us tips tricks uh, to that resuscitative thoracotomy incision. What do you need to think about? What are them some things you've learned over time about how to effectively do it? Uh, so so my my training uh, and my my choice of incision has also evolved as I've as I've learned from from Doctor Cotton, but. A lot. Uh, my my initial approach is a standard left anterolateral thoracotomy from the sternum, uh, just under the nipple, and, and angling that incision up. Don't forget to go up towards the axilla, so you're not. Uh, if you go straight down, you'll be going between multiple rib spaces, and that's going to uh, make things a lot more difficult for you. So that's my standard left anterolateral thoracotomy incision. I will uh, often concomitantly place a right-sided chest tube. And if that right-sided chest tube has no output, uh, then I'm done, and I, my left-sided anterolateral thoracotomy is my incision of choice. If I have any output from that right-sided chest tube, I will then extend to a bilateral thoracotomy uh, with transverse uh, sternotomy, also known as a clamshell. Uh, and then there are proponents uh, and certainly advantages of a primary uh, bilateral thoracotomy, doing a primary clamshell for ER uh, uh, traumatic arrest, uh, but uh, not everyone not everyone does that. I know that uh, Dr. Cotton, that's his incision of choice. It saves you uh, saves you some time from evaluating that right chest. And also, uh, you you heard uh, us talk about chest X-rays in some of these patients. We have a great luxury here of having chest X-ray machines bolted to the wall in the in the resuscitation bays, so there's no delay in getting digital chest X-rays. They happen uh, in real time. Uh, contra that to many hospitals where that chest X-ray is a portable machine rolling in. If the tech's not at at lunch, uh, she's there uh, with your patient or he, and uh, you get you get eventually an X-ray after the film gets taken back to the uh, to the developing machine 
uh, and then 10 minutes later you have a chest x-ray so if that's the case there's no time for chest x-ray here we do have that luxury of of getting chest x-rays even in some of our traumatic arrest patients i want to explain a little bit of what you said about technique so uh, uh again for all our listeners different levels etc we're going to start uh, essentially just right at the edge of the sternum almost a little on the sternum you don't want to be you don't want to short yourself immediately, okay? Nice bold strokes down right under the the nipple or the, again, Dr. Cotton used the, described the, the, the essentially bra line or the bra wire or whatever it may be. Inframammary Inframammary fold. fold. There's a word for that. A medical <laughs> terminology. That's That would be correct. So you're along those lines. And then you and you direct your incision up. Your incision is not straight down to the bed, right? Your incision follows the, uh, follows the rib. And it should be all the way down to the bed. You cannot. You should be able to not move your hand any farther yeah. down onto the bed. One of my one of my uh, 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 professors during my fellowship, Vince Gracias, used to say, "Cut the bed." Yeah. And 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 said we can always patch it up later. Now I, I say that flippantly, and I say that to reiterate Patrick's commentary. Uh, you don't want to cut the bed. Those are expensive items. Uh, however, it needs to go that far back. You need to do it like you were almost going to cut the bed. Yeah. And then a couple, uh, you know, two, three strokes, it should be down on the chest wall into the muscle. Uh, ideally, you know, at least personally, I like to put a pair of big scissors in there and stay on the uh, uh, on top of the rib and follow that down as a means of opening. I, I avoid the knife and making more injuries iatrogenically. Yeah, um, yeah you can, what I, what I, I can't remember the, the, mechanical name appropriate mechanical name of it, but opening the scissors those large heavy mets and following the crotch of it with the scissors slightly opened and sliding them up and down uh that that superior aspect almost of like rib. a plastic wrap package yeah. you just yes. kind of zip through yeah. you can do that yeah. with yes exactly yeah. when you're standing on top of the rib avoiding the intercostal bundle you get the uh, uh rib spreader in place make sure you allow yourself access to um complete a, uh, a clamshell, complete a sternotomy. So you have to arrange that uh, rib spreader so that you're not blocking, you're locking yourself in. When that happens, the um, the crank and the, uh, uh, the track, I guess, that you crank on is gonna be on the patient's skin and on the bed and it will almost inevitably get caught on clothing or skin and it will stop it, slow your progress. So make sure you don't have anything in the way, at, in the way as you're cranking the ribs open. Uh, you wanna check, uh, you need good access, or, or, um, when you get in, you want to be able, uh, say for cross-clamping aorta, you need to take that inferior pulmonary ligament down. Ideally, if you have a partner in crime with you there, they can grab the lung, forcefully pull it up and out of your way so that you can get into that, through that perineum, get your hand around, if not you know, mostly around the aorta to make sure you're appropriately cross-clamped. Um, yeah, I'm going to add, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm awesome. gonna add to that. I'm my... if, if you're going to cross-clamp the aorta, the only way to do this is to make a tunnel above and below anterior and posterior to the aorta in the in the pleura otherwise you cannot get that clamp on you'll think you have that clamp on mm -hmm. and the next time you look that clamp is just going to be sitting in the middle of the chest so make sure you get get your hand sweep your hand down along the rib cage up to the up to the uh, thoracic spine and just anterior to that's going to be the aorta encased in in some pretty thick connective tissue and pleura that you have to go through. It's uh, helpful if uh, you can have your your colleagues at the head of the bed place an NG or OG tube, so you can esophagus. feel that. So you can feel that NG tube, which uh, is in the esophagus, and you'll know uh, because a flat aorta uh, feels a lot like an esophagus. Very good. Uh, and these patients are all these patients should all have flat aortas uh, because they should all be in heaven. And how do you get into the, uh, into the 
pericardial sac, you know, heart's beating at you, or maybe, uh, who knows if it's not, let's say it's beating at you, or maybe not, but it, it can be hard to grab, it can be tense, what's your approach? I, I try to grab it with uh, a couple of toothy pickups and use a METS uh, to incise the pericardium. Right, and you incise longitudinally, staying away from the phrenic nerve, anything, Dr. Cotton, any way you grab it? Yeah, so uh, hopefully if you're doing it for the, the number one reason to be doing this, which is a tamponade, you're not going to be able to grasp it. So I, at that point, I will have uh, a knife in my hand and use a 15 or a 10 blade and just nick the pericardium uh, because, again, it's going to be too tense to grab and then finish it off with, with METS, again, open like we talked about, up and down along that phrenic, uh, uh, just parallel to it all the way. And take it up. Don't be afraid to take it up high because uh, it's going to go up to that route. You're going to be able to deliver the heart out a lot easier. So let's take a step back for a second. So you've opened the chest. Hopefully you're going to find some blood there that's going to be it's going to be a thoracic or cardiac injury. So I open the chest. I've got my clamp like you just talked about. I've got the, the finichetto aimed up to the axilla with the, the U part of it aimed up to the axilla. Uh, really get that left arm cranked up behind them, almost like they're sitting on it with their hand behind their head uh, because you will frequently grab the axillary fat and or skin and really trash that and just you know just from a from a uh, style point it really kind of looks kind of trashy if you uh, rip up all that skin up there uh, so now I'm in the chest now my first thing is grossly addressing any hemorrhage is anything actively sh- bleeding up in my face if anything is that could be a subclavian like we talked about earlier that could be a PA I'm going to be packing uh, putting packs to whatever area, or if it's a PA, hopefully getting my fingers around it before I can get a Satinsky or something uh, else that you want to put down there. Next step is going to be to take down that that uh, that uh, ligament, the inferior pulmonary ligament, so that any movement of that lung does not tear uh, any of the vasculature. Then I'm going to be looking at the heart and uh, getting a cross clamp on you know, incising the pleura, getting the cross clamp on, and then addressing the heart. Opening up the heart, almost all these, I open up the pericardium to start my cardiac uh, compressions or explore the heart, and then address that at that time. You've got to have that cross clamp. In fact, if it's not done almost simultaneously, it ought to be done, in my opinion, probably first, because any cardiac compressions are going to be worthless to the heart and the brain unless you have that thing cross clamped. And again, simultaneously with, uh, with blood volume. I think uh, that that covers that covers the left side, and and I want to mention it's it's important to incise and open that pericardium every time you do a resuscitative thoracotomy, uh, even though it doesn't it may not look like there's a tamponade. Sometimes there's a tamponade, and it doesn't you, you just can't see it through uh, some some of the thicker pericardium. So it's absolutely important to open it and deliver the heart. And if you're doing this for a pulseless patient, which that's what we're talking about here. You need to deliver the heart anyway to perform uh, open cardiac massage. I should ask you a quick question too. This is, uh, and that was a, a, a Dr. Cotton's description of better. The systematic approach is a better way to discuss this. The uh, the technique to resuscitate thoracotomy. What about jamming stuff into the heart for resuscitation for access and or jamming you know an epi epi stick directly to the heart? I've seen people do this or talk about it. So I so let's address the last one first. Epi sticks are for stuff. pulp fiction. Yeah. Right. Epi sticks are for pulp fiction and for Quentin Tarantino movies. I would ne- I would not do that. 
to this patient. If you need to do something like that for a patient, uh, you're simply going to get them back, even if you do briefly, and they're just going to coat again. And, yeah, if you if you give uh, an epi stick to a T-bone steak, it's going to beat too. So, <laughs> so, so. But as I, far as access, if you have no other access, yeah, you can't I will get any absolutely do a, a right atrial appendage line. Yeah. yeah. How do you do that? Put a, a purse string. Uh, usually, you're going to have some silk suture uh, available to you in the emergency room. Quick purse string. Incise it with uh, with whatever knife you have or a scissor in between your purse string. And I use an IV tubing uh, without any attachments uh, because of that lure lock end is nice and bulbous. It'll catch on your your uh, purse string, stick into the right atrium, and then that is of course hooked up to. Uh, a massive, uh, a rapid infuser. Here we use uh, Belmont, uh, but that may be level one infuser in your in your institution. Yeah, so I, I would do a similar approach. Uh, I usually get a a side biting Satinsky on on that atrial appendage, and then um, do my purse string, and then literally cut the appendage to accommodate it. Um, over the years, I'll tell you that I've gone from doing the, the, the straight IV tubing like Dr. Todd uh, discussed. I will still do that occasionally, but because it's so larger, it's perfect to get in. And or when it's once it's in, it sticks larger. It's almost like a the peg mushroom, if you will, to hold it in place. Um, and so it's great once it's in, but it's a pain in the ass to get in sometimes if you haven't made that hole large enough. And so I will tell you occasionally what I like to use more is a Rickline, a resuscitation uh, catheter. And it's so it looks like a small, and we have these in our trauma bay. If you don't have them, you should get them. It looks like a small uh, cortis, a short cortis. And with that, I can make a small incision, go straight in with the introducer and cortis off this Rick, get it in place, remove the, the the dilator introducer, and now I have a small cortis in the right atrium, which also has that little side eye spot that I can secure into place so it's not moving back and forth in addition to a, to a possible purse string. That's just another uh, another maneuver to, to consider when doing this. And then finally, I think the discussion would be whether or not to do clamshell or, um, or just a left anterolateral. Yeah, perfect. All right, and to finish off this discussion, too, Dr. Khan has an article that uh, influenced his thinking on approach to these uh, to resuscitate thoracotomies. Yeah, so so when I was in my first well fellowship and then into my first job, I was left anterolateral thoracotomy, cut the bed. Left anterolateral thoracotomy, th- cut the bed. And there were a couple of body habitus, especially when I went from Philadelphia to Nashville, the body habitus changed, and some of that left anterolateral thoracotomy could sometimes be a little more challenging to access all the things that we just talked about doing, especially if it was uh, trying to get a right atrial appendage line in. And I started thinking more along the lines of doing clamshells for everyone. And I will tell you, if someone crashes in the operating theater with the lights, with all the equipment, with all that amazing help that we have up there, I'm probably more likely still to do a left anterolateral thoracotomy. But if someone dies, if they die in the emergency department or right before they get to us, that patient in my practice now will get a clamshell. And even though my practice was kind of heading that way, there was an article by Sims, uh, Eric Sims, S-I-M-M-S, that came out in 2013. I can't remember if it was World Journal of Surgery or another journal, but it came out and it showed 
an anatomic cadaver study where they looked at all the different approaches and they gave it green spots if you got great view, yellow if it was an iffy view, and red if you had no view. And the clamshell or bilateral anterolateral thoracotomies gave the best view of almost anything you needed to repair in a patient that had lost pulses in the emergency department. And so, yes, it's a much more morbid decision, and I think that's why Dr. Tom still, you know, most people he can do that left anterolateral thoracotomy on, and I agree. That was my practice for years. I've shifted over that if, oh my God, if they're dead, they're going to get a dead man's incision, and that's going to be a clamshell. And I think you can access more. I'm not saying I get better outcomes or better survival, but I feel like you get I to have, see. You see more though. I get to see, and I know that I've looked at everything possible by doing that. That's just my bias. And and one one more thing to mention when you're doing this, if you get the patient back, don't forget about your mammaries. The mammary arteries are going to bleed. Yep. Yep. And, and if you get them back, they, they are bleeding. <laughs> or if so, your CPR is effective, you're yeah. going to see it. So put some hemostats on those mammaries while you while you extricate the patient to the operating yeah. room. Yeah. yeah, and one last thing: if you're if you're doing you know, also learn how to do appropriate open cardiac massage. It's a two-handed technique. It is not one hand and a thumb. It is a two-handed technique. What happens yeah. when you put that thumb on the anterior heart? Uh, well, depending on their their cardiac muscle, you can go right through right it. Through it. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Great. All right, that wraps it up for today. Uh, lots of great discussion. Um, again, thrilled Dr. Taub and Dr. Cotton were able to join us today. That uh, comprises part one of our complex case series. Please uh, tune in next time for part two. We're going to go over some uh, some more pretty fantastic cases and get some more insight uh, from experts in the field. Until then, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.